Hello, it's Natalia Lloyd and welcome to my podcast, Beehive Household. As part of my interior design business, my first chat with my clients is a deep dive into their lifestyle and daily routines to be able to understand how they use their homes. And this is where the idea for this podcast came from. So subscribe and listen to find out about the daily routines of my extraordinary guests, their mindset, their choice of interiors, but most importantly, how their life at home sustains their success and much, much more. I hear a lot of people say, when we get back to normal, well, I don't think it will be that the way it was. The change has happened and there is a new normal. And it's about adjusting, changing all habits in order to thrive in this new normal. Lockdown may have precipitated this change for many, but going forward, flexible working practices will be the name of the game. And those who can adapt the best will be able to take advantage and maintain high performance. So this bonus episode is all about giving value, making a difference and helping people gain key insights into how our brain operates when working from home and for an extended period of time. And it's my pleasure to introduce the lady who does not require introduction in her field, Tamara Russell. Tamara is an experienced clinical psychologist, martial artist, Shall I add here with the black belt in Shaolin Kung Fu? Watch out. <laughs> a neuroscientist who brings a unique multiple perspective to mindfulness teaching, thinking, therapy, and research. Currently, she is the director of the Mindfulness Center of Excellence in London and a visiting lecturer at King's College London when it was permitted. She is also a mindfulness consultant trainer and speaker in a wide variety of settings, including education and health. Tamara's first book, Mindfulness in Motion, has been sold internationally. And this is one of the books I'm reading right now as well. Tamara, welcome to Beehive Household Podcast. Thank you, Natalia. It's really a pleasure to be here and to support this initiative because I think people are facing some very new challenges And while the brain doesn't always like novelty and uncertainty, this is actually a super rich neural environment in which to explore some of our old habits and maybe develop and transform a little bit into some new habits. So I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. Absolutely. My pleasure. And I'm going to kick this off with the most frequently asked question and a concern. So for those who work from home, there's no physical transition from one place to another in contrast to how we used to do it when we commute to work, to the offices and back. A lot of people struggle to break through the concept of living at work ultimately because we spend so much time in one space. What does it do to our brain? How does it work? internally for us? Well, just to say, I'm, I'm often asked about this and the, the lack of the commute and the impact of that on people, I think has surprised many. The commute was often something that people complained about, especially in the That's big cities. Right. That's absolutely true. 
And much of my work was about helping people to get over the trauma of the commute and uh, be able to arrive at their desks with their brain in a state ready to work, especially if they've been commuting during rush hour. Um, so, so previously, much of my work was about how to manage that transition from a very busy train or dealing with trains that are cancelled or, or works happening or, you know, all those, all those things, especially Londoners had to deal with, you know, how do we get our brain state from the, the melee of the commute ready to focus and ready to go to work? Um, and we've got a different problem now. As you say, we, we're living at work and the commute is from the bedroom to the living room or, you know, from the living room to the kitchen or, as I'm jokingly saying, you know, conference room three, the downstairs bathroom, which is where <laughs> some people are, are trying to find some privacy for their calls. And uh, because we now don't have this geographical transition to work with, it becomes even more important that we're mindful and cognizant and very deliberate in our cognitive transitions. And uh, I work with a particular process called the transitional pause, which is a brain hack specifically designed for, you know, geographical transitions, cognitive transitions and emotional transitions. And it is a thing to do but it's a doing that then creates the conditions for our brain to work as best it can, given the context and the environments that we're in. And your website features a quote, nothing happens until something moves. Is that what it's about? Yeah, well, I mean, I have to say that's Einstein's quote. <laughs> and I, I, you know, I, I go to the big guns <laughs> to get my inspiration. But that, that quote particularly spoke to me because I'm super, super passionate about how the movement of the physical body is something that supports our mental movements. And once we wrap our heads around the fact that thoughts are just movements trapped in the mind then we can begin to understand the link between physical movement and mental movement. And what scares and alarms me at the moment is how our physical movement is being constricted. Mm -hmm. Because from a cognitive perspective, an emotional perspective, a creative perspective, this is hugely problematic in my view. And therefore it's vital that we do whatever is possible to be interested and curious in how our body is moving when we can't necessarily move as much as we might like to and how we can also really get to understand that these are mental movements that we can work with and play with and go into the gym of our mind in Love order yes. to try to optimize under circumstances where we, we're not able to do the things that really are good for our health. What are your go-to tips? And I know in your studies and in your coaching, you go extra mile and in-depth with your courses and classes for someone to just get those quick tips to make a difference. What would be your go-to advice to the listeners? With the mindful, well, yeah. mindful movements, particularly. 
Well, the the humble shoulder roll, as I call it, um, often people don't really recognize or understand what they have literally at their fingertips. And I think mindful movement and mindful stretching is our most underutilized tool. And it's very simple. It doesn't need extra equipment. It doesn't need any technology. If you've got a brain and a body, you've got it already. And I think our minds and our brains are a little bit addicted to complexity and sensation in a way that works against us right now, because in complexity, we need simple solutions. And so for me, the shoulder roll, it does so many things. And maybe the listeners might even have a go at that right now. So level like one we of do the at the moment. Roll. Yeah, join That's- me. So, so level one is move your body for self-care and kindness and physical health. And anybody that joins a meeting with me, we start the meeting with a shoulder roll because I know that they've been sitting at a Zoom, <laughs> sitting at the computer probably all day, and I want their best brain. So I don't want a brain that's been sat in a body that's locked in stillness with the tension and the neck pain gripping and constricting as the day goes on. You know, as we are in the body, so we are in the mind. And so I want them loose and flexible and open. And a few shoulder rolls throughout the day, I think, is is something that will mitigate the billions and billions of dollars lost in businesses due to chronic neck and shoulder and back pain. You know, the, the answers are simple. Move your body. And it's billions and billions and billions of dollars of lost productivity and, and, and physio appointments and chiropractic appointments. And the solution is quite simple. Allow people to move their bodies. And shifting to working at home, I think, has released people's permission to That's move right. their bodies while they're working. They, they felt nervous to do that in the office. Felt, A lot of cultural differences there. Yes. Yeah. That you, you, will get, you probably can get looks and maybe some people are more self-conscious than the others and it will feel unnatural to be doing it in the space of an open office environment whereas at home all that is required is just the thought and the knowledge how much benefit you can get from a simple move and you're right because the moment you're dealing with a stressful situation or you're highly alert or you're focused I notice it all the time. The shoulders naturally go up and they stay that way up until that situation is resolved or done or you've finished 12 hours of work or nine hours or eight hours of work. Then your shoulders, it's already too late for them to go down because the tension has already formed up there. Right. So you're going even deeper now. So level one is just move. You know, don't even worry too much about it. Just move, just move. Level two is move mindfully. So to move mindfully, what we're then doing is we're very deliberately engaging the frontal lobe, the attention networks, very specifically, intentionally, deliberately making the shoulder roll movement the main thing for our brain to pay attention to. So we're now into the attention training networks of a mindfulness practice. So it's a bit more than I just kind of wiggled my shoulders 
Yeah, we're gathering data from the body in a very specific way and choosing to allocate attention to a shoulder roll. Now, when we do that, we're drinking in the big data of the body and we'll begin to notice exactly some of those things that you pointed to, which is constriction, tightening, shoulders going up, posture changing, hunching through the neck, the neck slightly forwards as it is when we're on the computer, sort of this weird elongation to go to the screen. And if we do this movement mindfully, we're feeding our brain's data banks about the positioning and the state of the body. And this means we'll be able to notice earlier on as those shoulders start to creep up. And this is why then a mindful shoulder roll is also an emotion regulation tool. Because as you say, 90% of people experience stress or distress, emotional distress, mental distress, something happens in the neck and the shoulders, usually. I mean, we have a lot of other body parts where the stress can show up, but neck and shoulders is my go-to place to check. And you're right. Are my shoulders up around my ears or are my shoulders relaxed? Basic emotional intelligence training right there. (laughs) And how they... How to build that habit into your daily routine? So something you'd say so simple, shoulder roll. How do you make that a habit? Where where do we start in breaking through the habitual stressful state and bring in that mindfulness? Do you put what what is there to help? Do you put a huge sticker? on top of your screen, roll your shoulders, or what's, what can help? Yeah, so the body and mind training program that, that I've been developing over the last 10 years or so, I mean, this is exactly what we're interested in. What can we do moment by moment? Um, one of the taglines is sort of ha- mindfulness, hashtag no cushion. This isn't about, you know, taking your mindfulness over there onto a cushion into this beautiful, wonderful, quiet place where we can sit for 45 minutes meditating. Um, I know that you're, you're, a, you're a mom, you're an entrepreneur, you know, a wife, a partner, a, a friend, a sister. You know, we, we, we have to put our mindfulness in our life rather than taking it somewhere else. I mean, it's great if you can do that, but the, the realities now, I think, of people working at home and schooling at home, it, it needs to be inserted in our day-to-day life. And One of the key things we talk about is activating a pause. We pause and we turn the camera in. And I'm making this kind of gesture with my hand, so I'll describe it for your listeners. My hand is pointing towards the screen, and and this is where my attention tends to be. Of course, I'm at work, I'm I'm typing, I'm looking at reports, I'm in meetings, and I want to turn those fingers and the wrist around So I pause, I turn the camera inwards, and even if it's just a mini internal selfie of 20 seconds to gather gather information from my body and do one or two shoulder rolls. 
the pause, peppering the day with a pause. Now, I, I do have pause stickers um, that I send out to my clients. They stick them on their laptops. They put them on their fridges. They, they put them on their phones. It's a visual prompt to help the brain break this habit of rushy, 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 rushy. And like any habit, it, it, it needs support and scaffolding at the beginning to change. But as we start to do it more and more often and we notice the benefits, it becomes a behavior change. So pause is important. Visual reminders are important. What we know from the research and, and something that's been part of my work for many years is mindfulness is a team sport. It's not something that we do alone. Mm. So my other top tip is, who do you have meetings with or interactions with where you can agree that you will give yourself five minutes or two minutes or 30 seconds at the beginning of every meeting to pause and roll your shoulders? Now, anybody working with me, it's a given. It's right. a given that we will do this. So, you know, and, and you're not to be checking your emails and you don't necessarily have to do what I'm doing, but there is a buffer at the beginning and the end of the meetings where we take care of the body and we move it. And that's because the people I work with know the neuroscience, which is our brains work better after we've moved our bodies. And I want, I want these brains with me at their peak capacity. So it's fascinating to me that we have this culture that has restricted movement in our education system, restricted movement in our work environments, certainly in many Western cultures has beliefs about when people move and what that means for their attention. What um, are those beliefs? Well, I mean, my own personal experience is, you know, my mind is fast. <laughs> it goes far. Uh, I'm a kinesthetic learner. I'm kind of borderline on an ADHD diagnosis in, in my days in school. That wasn't so popular, but probably I, I would have met criteria for that. <laughs> um, and, you know, the message there is if the child is wriggling, they're not paying attention. And they need to be told to sit still and sit still means sitting still, eyes forward. You know, your visual system is looking at the blackboard and it's assumed that if your eyes are pointing to the front that you're paying attention. What we know about cognitive diversity now is that, that that's not the case. <laughs> and what we know even as adults is just because my eyes are looking at you and I'm nodding my head doesn't necessarily mean that you're that listening. That's right inside my mindscape is anything to do with paying attention. And in fact, Correct. probably what, you know, we, we realized through mindfulness training that, that actually we're terrible at paying attention. But I work a lot with people with ADHD, youngsters, as well as adults. And, and my top tip from a brain perspective is actually, yes, you, you should be doing some sort of movement to kind of distract enough of your mind that will then allow you to focus and pay attention on what's going on in the classroom. And again, anybody working with me knows that I will get up, that I will move around. Um, and it's not because I'm not paying attention. It's because I'm trying to modulate my attentional system so I can still be in 
the conversation and bring a high quality of attention because it's quite difficult for me to sit still over a certain duration and be able to concentrate. But equally, there are types of minds that work well in that single-minded concentration. Is that right? So different this is, the, this, is the, this is the beauty of working from home is it's forcing us to recognize that we have different kinds of minds. And so some people are working from home and going, wow, this is brilliant. I can move. I can change. I can change which room I'm in. Uh, I, can, I can move around. I can get up. I can do different tasks in different spaces. It's fantastic. And when I was sat at my desk in the office, it was really, really hard for me. And then there's others who were saying, this is a nightmare. I needed the kind of environment of the office because I just can't concentrate and I'm not able to do what's necessary to work from home. I'm really missing the office. I'm noticing a loss of productivity. And what I'm advising smart businesses to do, particularly businesses that want to be interested in how to harness cognitive diversity going forwards is to do a very, very thorough post-mortem on what's worked and what's not for their different, different kinds of employees in the shift to working from home. And you're right. It's not that we're going to get everybody back at the office. It's probable that we're going to have some sorts of mixed models And the businesses that will really thrive are the ones that take the time and care and attention to be very interested in their workforce and what their workforce really needs for each beautiful brain to be able to offer its best. But what I like about what's happening now is everybody's basically experiencing a kind of acquired ADHD. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so the insights <laughs> from the work with ADHD are like the most valuable insights at the moment <laughs> because actually we've been figuring out how to do that all our working lives. We've been okay. figuring out how to work in ways that support a mind and brain that's a little bit scattered, easily distracted, struggles sometimes to stay in and focus, but actually when it is engaged and optimized, really can work fast and quickly, but it's a different style of working to, to others. Does it help? And this is in very relevant to the subject that we're discussing with working from home and actually understanding how your mind works your personal mind because we are you're right we are all different and we all require different approach and different things work for some completely different things work for others does it help knowing those diagnoses sounds a little bit negative does it help labeling yourself because there's a little bit of a social negative span on those things does it help to know how our minds work absolutely mm-hmm. currently we mostly have somewhat stigmatizing psychiatric type labels to describe different minds that absolutely needs to be updated because these are not pathologies that are wrong or bad. These are not people that are broken who need fixing. 
these are minds and brains and cognitive styles that just have not been accommodated in a very narrow way of working and learning and education. And, you know, the sorority motto, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And absolutely, if you want to go fast, I mean, how does business work, right? You make the strategy, you design the goalposts, and you pay the fastest, quickest, most competitive, brightest person that will execute. And they stick their elbows out and they go, go, go. And this is the competitive model. Now we've had, you know, a few centuries of that. And while we've had some incredible advances as a human species, we're also sitting with a population of human beings that are the most physically and mentally unwell that we've ever seen in our human experience. And on top of a planet <laughs> mm. that is crying out for care and attention. So if we look with balanced view, balanced eyes at, at this one type of strategy, which is if you can't keep up, you're over there and you've got a problem and you need medication or you need to be in a special school or you need to be not involved in this team or you can't work in this business. It's got pros and cons and the cons are becoming more and more apparent now. Now, the new way, <laughs> the new way is to say, what if we say that these are not people that are broken? These are not people who are problematic. They are people that have a different kind of cognitive profile. And in the work that I do, I, I use something called the neurocognitive model to help people think in non-pathologizing, -patholo non non-stigmatizing ways about how does your attention system work? What does your default mode network space of the mind look like? How does that work? How is your salience network tuned? What can we understand about your reactivity and, and your emotional life? And how easy is it for you to stay on track? How easy is it? What do you need around you to help you stay on track? And we use this language to say, you know, you, you've got really great strengths in some areas, other things you're going to be really rubbish at and know that. Accept it. Accept it and work Accept on your strengths. Mm. Right. And know when you need to get someone to help you. And that was my kind of biggest learning was, you know, where, where do I know that I'm not good? And how do I collaborate with people that can help me in those areas? How do I create the environments for my own unique mind to thrive? Mm. So, the confines and the limitations of who else is at home and how do we have to accommodate those minds and what kinds of minds are with us at home? <laughs> Your brain exploded <laughs> after taking all of those into account, isn't it? So just to kind of extract the first step from whatever I'm understanding, is that element of self-awareness, element of knowing yourself, and actually try to be kind to yourself, accepting who you are, building a huge wall against those stigmas, negative perceptions, 
because world has changed and we need to adopt, we need to adjust, we need, and it will happen. There is a gap, there is a bit of catching up to do, but let's work with what we have. And you mentioned one ways of understanding your brain type is something that listeners could do with you. Is that Yeah, I mean just I just to pick up on what you said, you know, if you need to adjust, why not go and speak to people who've spent a lifetime having to adjust? Mm. Yes. And that's why I think the people that are now kind of speaking out about their experiences of how they managed to cope in working environments that were like really hard are potentially some of the experts that we need to talk to now because everybody, all the kind of quote unquote normal people, whoever they are. Right. <laughs> but I don't think there's any normal, normal, normal people <laughs> who are going, this is like the worst kind of working environment that I've ever found myself in. Mm. It's like, well, welcome. <laughs> welcome to our world. <laughs> this is what it was like for people with cognitive difference at school, at work. Mm. And, and, and those that have successfully managed to navigate it have got a lot of learning about what it is to adjust to a working environment that is an optimum for your brain. And, okay, I bring some particular skills to the game as well in terms of having that understanding from a personal point of view, from a clinical point of view, from a neuroscience point of view. Yeah. Um, but there's a big kind of reconditioning, deconditioning experiment happening now because the brains find themselves in very, very different environments. And let's see who's managing and who's not. And if we approach mm. with kindness and non-judgment approach and curiosity and compassion and courage what can we find out about what people need and yeah one-to-one -one, I do work with people using this model I use a variety of tools I, I I use dialogue I might ask questions about how they're working I I try to understand the context of their working environment the demands of their job Um, and I use the, the mindfulness tools as well to get a sense, a kind of a quick sense of which kind of a mind is this. Uh, and then I would be advising both behavioral things that they could do at home, as well as training and practices that they could begin to implement during the day. But it's also a huge shift to self-responsibility. And so it really only works with people that are kind of up for it because it is effortful to get to know one's mind is effortful, to begin to tame and train your mind is effortful. And that's, that's a huge part that's important. I mean, as a psychologist, I can sit and chat and reflect and we can kind of have a nice time. But if you want to train your brain, it's the same effort that you would put into going to the gym. Right, yes. And I also say to people that come with this idea of, well, I, you know, I, I oh, you know, that sounds expensive. And I just mm -hmm. question them and I say, how much have you spent on your left brain education? How much money have you spent educating your left brain? Mm -hmm. As a doctor, 
as a lawyer, as a designer, as an architect, as a banker, somebody doing an MBA. And yet, all the science tells us, all the science tells us that the capacity to activate and operate and use all of this learning that you've got is fundamentally sits on top of an emotional system. So well, how much have you spent yeah. on, 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 on taking care of that? Mm. Very good point. Very good point. And, and I think in the recent years, it became more apparent and more popular. And I may use even the word fashionable to use mindfulness became fashionable. And it's a, it's a good sign. It's yeah, well, let's, I mean, let's talk about that because there was, there's been two recent quite high-profile articles, one in Forbes and one in The Economist, saying that mindfulness is no good in a pandemic. And Interesting. I do have a particular take on this, <laughs> of course. Please share. <laughs> we are all ears. Because the mindfulness work that I was involved in had its origins in the Maudsley Hospital, in the acute psychiatric inpatient unit, working with people that could not sit still, whose mind and body states were in states of high arousal, what I would call in the red, <laughs> in the red, high adrenaline, high cortisol, full of fear, a bit disembodied. And actually that kind of describes everybody right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, to say, let's just sit still and be fully aware of the present moment. Now, if you haven't trained and you ask someone to do that, guess what? It's pretty painful. It doesn't work. They don't come out of that experience feeling soothed and calm. They come out of that experience fully aware of how distressed they are. And so in the training that I've been designing, it's, it's mindfulness for moments of a crisis. And what we know is that if you take a pause and you turn the camera in and you see that you're in the red, do not start doing mindfulness training. In fact, you must stop anything that looks like mindfulness training and you must divert all of your brain resources to taking care, calming down, relaxing the system, regulating the vagal nerve. How? And Weirdly, By that is what? actually a mindful thing to do. That's right. Is, is about care as well as training attention. How do you do that? What is the physically, how do you calm yourself down? How do you train that vagal nerve? Shoulder roll. We're going back to exactly where we started. Two top yes. tips, right? One is the shoulder roll. Get into the body. Come out of the head. Start to loosen the body. Second tip, regulate the vagal nerve, hand on heart. <laughs> Regulate your vagal nerve, put your hand on your heart mm -hmm. and take some slightly longer out breaths, slightly longer out breaths. Now, these are simple things and people get it, it, it breaks my heart because they just want something complicated and technical and you don't actually need it. And again, I, I honor the, the teaching and the sharing and the learning that comes from working with people that their mind and body states are through the roof with adrenaline and cortisol, you know, to a level that I hope and pray most people never experience, oh, but they're getting a taste of it now. You know, they are getting a taste of it. Lockdown three, 
they're getting a taste of what is it like when you've got nothing in the tank, you're tired and you're just getting stuff thrown at you and your reserves are going down and the reds are going up and the greens and the self-soothing is going down. And, you know, people that come from this experience, they're our teachers now. What do you do when there's nothing to do? What do you do when all the resources that you usually rely on are not there? And what you do is you roll your shoulders. <laughs> you move your body. If you can in nature, go for it. You feel your feet on the floor. You put your hand on your heart. And you just say, what is true for me right now? And what is important for me right now? And you take a slightly longer out breath. And, you know, if you want to have the science explanation, what are you doing? Well, you're regulating your vagal nerve. You're activating your soothing system. You're activating the relaxation response. You're loosening tension and tightness in the body. So your brain is like, okay, maybe I'm not quite so. <clears throat> I'm a bit more. Ah. You're using your body to inform your brain. You're using your brain to modulate your body. And you have to practice and do it again and again and again. But this hand on heart practice, I'm, I'm training psychiatrists working in acute psychiatric units to use this, training parents to use this, managers, because actually if you're in a position of care for somebody else that's in a panic, your capacity to regulate your own emotional system has a massive impact on the people that you're caring for or educating or training or, or trying to soothe. This idea of putting your own safety mask on first as a parent or a carer or a healthcare worker. And it works, you know, with practice, repetition. It really works. But, you know, everybody wants an app and something that's reading their brain waves or their yes. heart rate or their whatever. <laughs> I mean, you can have that, but if you want to actually learn how to do it, this is the, this brain is your technology. The tools are there. The tools are there. Mm -hmm. So we've established the shoulder roll, hand on heart, and a little chat with yourself. This is universal. This will work for everybody. If we start breaking down slightly by cognitive profiles, what else out there? Little tip from you for different minds, for different brains. What may help as a, as a little next step to consider? Well, I find at the moment that many people are finding benefit from using music as a way to help regulate the different motivational systems of the brain. And this is not new things, <laughs> really. Um, but for example, you know, I do recommend that people have uh, a sleep playlist, for example, a playlist Very where they've either got music that kind of calms them down, soothes them, Um, you can go on YouTube. There's a, a million and one kind of, you know, delta wave, binaural beats, sleep meditation music, and, and kind of using especially designed music to, to modulate brain waves is 
kind of the next generation of, of music production, actually. But there's lots to experiment with on YouTube. And part of my approach with people is I do have some expertise, but I'm not you. And I really move away from, you know, top 10 lists and you have to do this. And this is the thing that's going to work for you because I don't know how it is for you. I don't know what environment you live in. We have to work together where I'll give some tips, but you have to become your own scientist and experiment and see, does it work for me? So you might try some binaural beats around sleep. You might just like classical music and piano some people like the spa music, you know, the Chinese music. Other people go really insanely angry when, when they hear that music. Really? <laughs> I've had that before. Like, that music makes me full of rage. I'm just oh like, oh, yeah. Well, it's like, it's when you say to somebody, um, you know, when somebody that's stressed out and you tell them to calm down and then they want to punch you in the face, right? So it's that kind of thing, isn't it? It's like... So it may be for you that what's helpful is that you find a piece of music that matches your energy level, which might be a bit more jumpy and a bit more kind of energetic. And then you learn to kind of modulate and you make a playlist that's your own winding down pattern. So you're coming from the day of like going really, really fast. You need to find some music that that matches that. But if your intention is to calm down, pick another track that's a bit slower and then have a third track that's a bit slower and, and design your own um, kind of music calm down. Now, if you need help getting going in the morning, that's another kind of issue, isn't it? Mm. So you might say, well, I want to start the day softly. I don't, I, it doesn't work for my brain to just jump right in and go. I've got the kind of mind that needs to have a bit more spaciousness, a bit more routine, and, you know, I've, I've found that working with various people. They just say, look, you wake up tomorrow and your brain is on. You don't even need a cup. You know, you're on and you're in. But for me, I need yeah. 30 minutes. My brain has got a different pace at which it wakes up. And anybody with a teenager also understands and recognizes <laughs> probably different pacings around waking up and sleep cycles because the brain is fundamentally reforming at that age. And, uh, and there are, and teenagers are a great example of this. Actually um, the neuroscience says it's actually unkind and unproductive to ask a teenager probably to do anything before 11 o'clock because their brain is just not ready for it. And, and that's oh, what the science tells us. This is but, groundbreaking. Yeah. Well, but school starts at nine and they have to go. I mean, it's, it's painful. We have science information that tells us but it doesn't go into policymaking. Some science goes into policymaking. Other science doesn't go into policymaking. Yes. And, and maybe there's something in this moment, because for education, of course, we know it's, it's been really hard for the teachers. And some of the work I do is, is working with educators and trying to bring this neuroscience-informed ways of working to classrooms and online classrooms. Um, the What Color Is Your Dragon program, it's called. And uh, the, the youngsters maybe have an opportunity now to work in different ways online. I mean, I know some of them are just not engaging at all, depending mm -hmm. on the support they've got at home. But some of them, I think, are finding it, it easier. I think it really helps. And that's why I really wanted to bring you along to this 
podcast episode and to share your knowledge because in, in a way the normal brain work these days you know putting that label on it that people need a bit of a scientific backup people want to understand i if people you're right in saying overcomplicate simple things and trusting that the shoulder roll and the hand on the heart can do a miracle to your mindset to your mental health it's not good enough it's just not good enough you know everyone likes to go in depth in understanding what exactly on a chemical level it's going to create an simple genius thing is always something so simple on the surface and i strongly encourage the listeners to do exactly that mindful shoulder roll hand on the heart little conversation with yourself about what is really important in the moment in the present moment of stress and i wanted to ask you a question in terms of what so having had this knowledge you've got this this little tools how can what can help you regulate yourself during your working day when you while you're working from home sometimes it doesn't fit with the culture of the company that you work in and if you are a one of the top management managers that listen to this there is an authority and there's a little bit of power of bringing it into your team and saying guys this is what we're doing what is your advice to someone who's a little bit junior and not quite up there how do you make this suggestion because you're right it's a million pound million dollar little fix that can save so much more to the business losses to human losses to workforce losses with just that little tip how how would you suggest um for big corporations how do you bring it into the culture how do you suggest well you're right culture starts at the top table doesn't it and embodied leadership mindful leadership eq emotional intelligence leadership these are sort of the buzzwords i suppose and what we're finding in 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 the work now is that the businesses that banked the covid dividend <laughs> as it were mm. are those businesses that had senior leadership teams with high emotional intelligence who were really embodying care they were the ones that managed they were the ones that were able to pivot quickly they they're the ones that still have a workforce that's fit for purpose um and and they were really leading from the top and some of the work i do with with a company called demist is is really at board level um but i do also work uh in consultancy with with more senior leadership around how to to bring this care orientation into the business and and it is tricky because there's a bottom line and there's a focus on the finances but actually if you really believe that people are your biggest asset then you need to have a wider aperture on 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 what is the work and what's needed as a senior leader to support your teams particularly now going into a third lockdown. Mm. Now in terms of the more junior members what i see happening which is beautiful and in the mindfulness work we we really see this there's some there's usually some champions down in the lower rungs and it's often somebody with a strong personal story 
often maybe depression or anxiety or, or dealing with a serious in illness or a chronic pain condition who perhaps met mindfulness through an NHS program or through a private training and practiced and practiced and practiced and, and fitted it into their lives. They had to, they had to fit it into their lives. And people tend to see these people and say, there's something different about you. Why are you not freaking out when everybody else is? How are you still well when everybody else is dropping like flies? And there's often some sort of comment like that. They see that this is a person who's pacing themselves differently in meetings, who creates space for others, who has a different type of quality of listening and attention. Or, you know, people that work with me are, are very specific about this and they say, so I can give you 60% attention right now. Is that sufficient for the conversation that we need to have? Or this is a conversation that requires me to really have 100% attention. So I'm not able to have it with you right now. And we need to find a time when we can do that. Or actually, I've just been hit by an email telling me blah, 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 blah. I've got 10% right now of my attention system activated, I need to go away and regulate because I won't be able to make any good decisions right now because my system is flooded with chemicals that are totally in the opposite direction <laughs> of making clear decisions. <laughs> and when you start to speak like this and people have a different experience of you, they say, how is this possible? And then they might become interested in, can we bring in a mindfulness trainer to offer a, a workshop and, and just give us some, some basic background information? Can we offer a drop-in where people could come in? And I mean, I actually recommend that organizations need to fundamentally include it in the working day, not force it, but include it in the working day, give people the option. It's, it's well-being budget, it's talent development budget, because you're, you're spending to save. But it's a preventative health model and those are quite difficult to cost and put into the financial budgets because you're kind of having to guess how many people didn't go off sick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and it's a slight leap of faith. But what I see companies doing is they'll say, oh, well, we've bought Headspace app for everybody. Nice, not good enough in my view. Mm, a, because it's not the type of mindfulness you can do in a crisis moment. B, it's individualistic rather than collective. And C, it's putting, it's putting the problem back into the individual's hand when actually it's the working culture that's probably the problem and causing the stress. <laughs> so, <laughs> so those are my top Boom. three reasons why that may not be a good idea. I mean, it's a great program. The guy that designed it is a, is a top, top guy. Um, but he comes from a, a Buddhist background and he learned mindfulness sitting in a cave and, you know, we're in the real world. And we had this conversation before, but, um, you know, going all the way off to Tibet, sitting down on the top of, on top of the mountain and close your eyes and sit there for days without any distraction, without kids, without homeschooling, without home responsibilities, with your businesses to run, with your works to attend to, with your management to report to. 
It's the easiest thing. Try to bring that mindfulness into the modern world with all those responsibilities that are around us, with all those different roles that we play, not just a mindful monk in, in, a, in a kind way describing that. But the reality is that to keep that mindfulness and that sanity, it's a much bigger challenge than taking yourself out of this environment and become centered and mindful and learning all the tricks of uh, meditation. And yeah. can we actually talk a little bit about meditation? Because Well, I, 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 I can flow on from that because there's also a key distinction there, which is what is your intention when you're training mindfulness? Now, if you want to do meditation, this is a spiritual practice. You've got some very specific intentions in mind when you meditate. You are seeking to transcend ego. You're seeking enlightenment. You want to go to nirvana. You're, you know, I mean, you're in a spiritual practice. And absolutely, if that is your intention, go to a proper meditation teacher, somebody that has trodden the path, <laughs> done yeah. the practices, knows the order in which they should be done, knows the likely barriers, and you get yourself committed to that. I think what's been kind of missold slightly in secular mindfulness is that people are using it for well-being and productivity. This is a totally different intention, totally different intention. And it means that a different kind of person might be teaching it to you. It means that you might be accessing it in a different kind of way. Uh, and it means that you are required to do some serious thinking about what are your intentions. And in hashtag what is mindfulness, there's a whole chapter about how do I approach mindfulness training as a secular practice? because I may not want to be enlightened. I may not have any kind of spiritual orientation at all, but I'm suffering in some kind of a way and I want some help. So which practices are good for me and how much should I dedicate time to this and how much should I spend on it? And do I want to do it for a week or five years? And what kind of teacher do I need? You know, all of these things need to be thought through and that's why I do say, I mean, the apps are great, but be clear, what are you doing and why? Yeah. And if you are wanting to be serious about transcending ego, reaching transcendental states, flying up in space, you know, with deities or whatever, yeah. go to a meditation teacher. Go to a meditation teacher, do it properly. Yeah. But if you're doing something else, actually, that's, for me, that's exciting because then it was like, okay, so what are we doing? Let's think about the brain. Let's think about the context. Let's think about the, all the amazing ways we can get mindful and present and aware of our bodies and minds. And it's not just sitting on a cushion. It's through arts and dance and swords and, <laughs> and relationships and, and businesses. Wow, creating mindful businesses. Is, can that be part of a mindfulness practice? If we rip up the rule book <laughs> and we yes. say that we're, we're not doing that, then let's open it up. And, and that's kind of what hashtag what is mindfulness was all about. And I, I worry that people thought I was trying to like explain everything about what is mindfulness. And I wasn't. I was really just challenging 
what do you actually think this thing is, people? Because when you understand that your brain has got to do certain things, you don't have to be sitting on a cushion. Your moving body is your main tool. And actually, everyday moments of life are right there for our training. (laughs) And if we can bring a bit of playfulness and creativity to it, it's actually going to be fun to grow and learn and develop. And we can all go along together as well, which is nice. (laughs) Boom. And I did pick up some great Tai Chi skills with you, Tamara. The sword sisters in the house. (laughs) Yay. And this is something I never thought that I would enjoy or even applies to me. Yet right behind me, there's a my sister's sword right there. I, I can see the tassel of the sword. I was noting that just before we got started. And um, I guess, hi, yeah, for your, your listeners, how do we get the courage, particularly as women, to challenge, challenge embedded thinking. Mm. Let's call it that to be kind. <laughs> <laughs> and, and have the courage to get it wrong and have also a different style of leadership which recognizes that the leader doesn't have to be perfect. The leader may not have all the skills the leader can be fallible, but is okay with being challenged. These are all the things we're facing in business, particularly at the highest level. How do we have challenging conversations about things that are not going as, as is correct or mm. in the right way? And I think for me, the passion always was, you know, given that I've got a mind that's expert at being inattentive, I've sort of committed my life to studying mindlessness. <laughs> and in the true spirit Ironically. of yang, in the true spirit of the yin yang philosophy, I've popped out the other side and and kind of discovered how to live a mindful mindless life. <laughs> and uh, and I think that's just where everybody's at at the moment, you know, uh, this myth of mindfulness is a kind of place of calm and relaxation and empty mind and <laughs> ponies jumping around in space i don't know it's it's not real life right now so no. let's just be real and try our best and be kind and try to pay attention as best we can to what's going on <laughs> that's right that's right yeah. adopt and adopt you know, different practices. And I've got one more question that is a little bit, um, has maybe a bit deeper in the sense that how some people may have allowed for the stress of working from home or homeschooling. Home environments are very different for different people and everyone's got their own story behind closed doors. And for those that allowed depression anxiety and fatigue state to become part of their life I wouldn't say it aloud because it kind of creeps on you I guess if you're not aware of what's happening and if you don't get self-care and help from specialists on time when 
depression, anxiety, fatigue becomes part of your life. What is, what is the way back into mindfulness? What tips are there for, from you, please? Well, this is something that I would refer to as getting into the green. So when we're depressed or when we're anxious, mind states, body states, of course, are, are very unpleasant. Um, we might either be kind of, you know, a bit overactivated with the, as I call it, the what if monkey. <laughs> what if, what if, what if, what if? Um, or the if only monkey of depression. You know, if only I'd done that. If only I hadn't done that. And, you know, it's, it's mind. It's mind. Yeah, it's mind doing what mind does and just doing it to the nth degree <laughs> uh, in a way that's been difficult to regulate, probably because you're tired and exhausted. And, uh, you know, so step number one is to say it, it's, it's not my fault. <laughs> um, it's, it's mind and body under exceptional circumstances. And, you know, can I have the, the courage and the curiosity and the compassion, the three C's, um, to, to look at what is possible. What is possible when, when nothing feels possible? And it might just be something very, very small to begin with, which is I'm going to commit to some technology management in the evenings where I shut the laptop, I turn the phone off, I've got half an hour, and in that half an hour, I only do something that gives me pleasure and joy. It might, might be a bath. I know baths and showers are the places where busy mums are, are finding some respite. Hiding. Hiding, <laughs> yes, hiding in the bathrooms. Um, some people are also hiding in the bathrooms with a, with a meditation, with a, a piece of music or doing a meditation there as well. Maybe it's having a cup of tea. Maybe it's, you know, watching or listening to a comedy. Something that gives you pleasure and joy and that soothes you. At the other end of the day, my top tip, this was somebody that just said, I, you know, I went for, for months beating myself up because I couldn't even do five minutes of meditation in the morning. And I ended up in a huge judging cycle. <laughs> I was meant to be doing mindfulness to feel better. And I actually ended up feeling worse. So she said, I just took the pressure off myself. And I said, it's five minutes for me. And I might choose to do a drawing. I might choose to just look out the window and have a cup of tea. I might choose to have five more minutes in bed. I might choose to have five minutes of meditation. I might read a book for five minutes. But the intention is a five-minute pause where it's all about me. And to many, this sounds like, is it about being selfish? And mums particularly struggle with this. And my answer to that is, if you're not feeling good, you have to be selfish. You have to. It is all about you in that moment. And if you can't make it all about you in that moment, what you take into the next interactions is compromised. And that's reality for so many people. I don't judge that. But how do we orient, particularly women, carers, healthcare workers, teachers, people that are used to just giving and giving and giving to others and suffering, how do we start making those small, small steps where we have a list of things? I've got sometimes on the wall a list of my greens, a green slime drink, listening to a piece of music that I love and dancing around the kitchen, talking to my sister on the phone, uh, doing a meditation, doing five minutes of Tai Chi or Qigong, going to the park, 
getting creative with my with my phone and doing some kind of creative artwork using a, using an app. Right. I mean, I've got seven things that are just right there. And on a good day, I've got a wonderful self-care routine going and I'm amplifying my greens and I'm getting my body ready to work. On a bad day, I glug down the green smoothie <laughs> whilst setting up the laptop <laughs> and frantically <laughs> WhatsApping my colleagues. <laughs> but I've done one thing that I did that I know is healthy for my body. And I, you know, I tried to kind of pick something else up during the day. I wonder from neuroscience perspective, from is there any scientific knowledge of what actually, what routine, how, you know, how to start the day for, in particularly in the context of working from home, is there anything that helps to kickstart the day in the right way, to engage the brain in the right way? So in terms of things like the 5am club, um, we can look through a variety of lenses to answer that question. Certainly there's individual differences and preferences and some people can be awake and alert at that time and, and others would really, really, really struggle with that. And my take is, you know, listen to your body, listen to your style, definitely check things out and test things out for yourself But if for any reason you can't do it, I think it is more important to listen to your own body and your own style. As always, checking the intention is the most important thing. What is my intention? In terms of times of day, uh, we could look through a Tai Chi lens, a Chinese medicine lens, yes, because please. absolutely there's a, a huge wealth of information from the Chinese systems of health about what organs are doing what at different times of the day. Um, and certainly the early morning hours is where quite a lot of important stuff is going on <laughs> in the brain and the body and the, and the system. Uh, Ayurvedic medicine, I think it's not something I know too much about, but I think they have some similar principles as well. So that might be something to think about. And then that would, of course, depend on your own makeup and your own body and system about whether that would work for you. Uh, there's the practicalities, of course, of who else is at home and what space have you got. So like you say, many mums needing to get up early in order to make time when they can just be undisturbed if, if that's what they need to do. Um, and I mean, I, I went through a period where being with the sunrise was something that I found particularly energizing. So I wouldn't necessarily say the five o'clock club. I would probably say sunrise. The sunrise club. I like that. And that would change according to the time of year. And that's very ying, of course, to be course. in tune with the natural environment as we, as we think about what do we do to keep ourselves well as human beings. Well, being attuned to the natural environment and the changing of the seasons is something that absolutely is good for our health. Um, so seeing the sunrise, being with the sunrise, being with that moment when all of nature is about powering up right. and then with nature powering up. Now, if you're a bit on the manic side, watch out because <laughs> you're going to go a bit too high. 
And you need to be at the other end of the day when the sun's going down, calming the system down and being with nature as she as she withdraws, as she as she soothes and quietens at the end of the day. Thank you for breaking it down for um, you know, perhaps someone who does not have a scientific background and really bringing full understanding into what mindful motion is, how we tackle the working from home, from, not for it not to become an issue, but for it to be part of our everyday life and to make the most out of it because there are things that we can't change and the circumstances that we're in, we have to be accepting of what they are and also how important to know more about ourselves to understand those cognitive differences, to be accepting of the way we respond to environment and things that happen around us. The way our brain works is unique to us and it's okay. It's just to get the right set of tools to go with each and everyone's brain. And I think I like not putting labels, those stigmas on top of every single cognitive profile but recognizing them as a unique uniqueness as a personality and the more we are aware of those differences as a society and as individuals the more difference we can make to the world to the planet to the humanity so My action points from this wonderful conversation with one and only Tamara Russell is that do please visit Tamara's website. I will leave all the links under the episode. She's got a huge list of mindful programs and offers enormous amount of knowledge, trainings, and can style, can, can break it down, can work individually. Thank you so much, lovely Tamara, for being with us and sharing all this knowledge. I Thank you so much. Well, it's a pleasure. And I, I love just even sharing this because some of this people just don't know about. And even just knowing that these are concepts and things that are out there can can help people, even if they don't ever uh, find anything else or, 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 or manage to get anything else from me. But I do have some YouTube talks. I've got some uh, audios on SoundCloud. There's books, there's a, an online course. So there's lots of things out there and, and we'll make sure that we share that with everybody. So thank you very much. 100%. Thank you, Tamara. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Beehive Household Podcast. Please don't forget to like, leave your review and share with your friends and family. For more information on the design services we offer, visit our website www.natalialloydinteriors.com. You can also find me on Instagram and Facebook under Natalia Lloyd Interiors as well as LinkedIn. Bye now till the next episode. Look after yourselves and your loved ones.